Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 237 of Forgotten Classics. Another tall tale, and this one told in a tavern. But first, the podcast highlight. This is one that I just found out about recently when I was on the SFF Audio podcast about podcasts. It got brought up. I was instantly interested. It's called Journey Into, meaning journey into the unknown, journey into mystery, journey into suspense, journey into horror, journey into adventure. Basically, every week, this podcast features replays of old-time radio shows along all different sorts of genres. There's an introduction, there's some exit information, and also they will do cast readings sometimes of new stories, classic stories, and they're often looking for new fiction. And in fact, I see that this podcast was a Parsec Awards 2013 finalist. Good for them! At any rate, I have enjoyed sampling some of these, and I know there are people out there who love audio drama. And I myself wound up getting hooked on a fairly recent series called Seeing Ear Theater, which I was introduced to here, although when I went looking around for more, I noticed that, of course, Jesse at SFF Audio had a whole page devoted to links to what you could find for free and to buy on the internet, so I will put a link both to Journey Into and to Seeing Ear Theater's page at SFF Audio. Anyway, there are all kinds of things on here, as I said, old, new. If you like audio drama, this is the place for you. So give it a try. Now, on to our tall tale told in a tavern. This is from a classic collection. Anybody who knows these kinds of stories will know by L. Sprague de Camp and Fletcher Pratt, called Tales from Gavagan's Bar. You might think it's Gavagan's, but they make very clear in the introduction it rhymes with pagan. I first met, or was introduced to, authors L. Sprague de Camp and Fletcher Pratt in their stories and novels about a psychologist, Harold Shea, and his various colleagues who figured out how to travel into parallel worlds where ancient myths and legends are reality. And these stories generally tend to be kind of funny. Okay, sometimes very funny. Because what happens is you have this modern sensibility that these guys have in these worlds where there's no such thing. They're thinking a completely counterintuitive way to these guys who used symbolic logic to project themselves into a different world. And part of the funny thing is, is because the method they use is a very inexact science, they almost always miss the target reality. The very first book, they're heading for the world of Irish mythology, and instead they wind up in Norse mythology. Anyway, they're a lot of fun. I always really enjoyed them, so definitely look for them. That is, though, what made me perk up my ears when I saw Tales from Gavagan's Bar as one of these tall tales from a science fiction or fantasy point of view told in a tavern. And in fact, these two authors definitely said they were influenced by Lord Dunsany's Jorkin story. So we've had one of those. 
We've had an Arthur C. Clarke who was also influenced. It would just be wrong not to include one of these, right? It also is great because these stories are not that long, but this gives you a really great idea of the kind of sense of humor, the juxtaposition of the fabled and fantastic with the very real world of this bar, and the different people chiming in on the story so that the twists can pop up at the end. If you like this, this book is still available. It's not always easy to find, but I got a used copy for not too much from Amazon. And I see that it says an ebook edition was published in 2011 when they were releasing Elspreg de Camp's works in electronic form. That may be easy to find. I just didn't even think to look there, <laughs> honestly. So, as you can imagine, as before with Arthur C. Clarke's story, this is under copyright. Do not use it. I am reading it based on the Fair Use Act because I want to share a little bit of their work with you and get you to try out either their novels or these short stories. You will love them. So here we go. Let's dive in and I'll meet you on the other side. No Forwarding Address by L. Sprague de Camp and Fletcher Pratt. So, this guy Donnelly proves, said Mr. Witherwax, waving his martini under young Mr. Jeffers' nose, that the ancient Egyptians and the ancient Mayans must have come from the same place, and this Atlantis is the only place they could have come from. What's this? said Doc Brenner, who had been engaged in contemplating the stuffed owl over the bar. Don't tell me that you've fallen for Donnelly's ancient maunderings. You mean it ain't a new book? said Witherwax, with the air of a man about to look crestfallen. God, no. It came out in the 80s, and the only people it fools now are those who believe that Bacon wrote Shakespeare. Brenner turned to the bartender. Mr. Cohan, this puts me in a weakened condition. I need a Sazerac to restore my strength. But look here, said Witherwax. There has to be something to account for all those legends of floods and places that disappeared under the ocean. Not any more than there has to be a historical event to account for the Book of Revelation, said Brenner firmly. Continents only move at the rate of a fraction of an inch a year. There's no conceivable way you could get the whole mid-Atlantic ridge down two or three miles below the surface in the ten thousand years allowed by the story, which originally came from Plato. Atlantis just never existed. I used to think so, too, said a young man with blonde hair so wavy it looked as if it had received professional attention. Don't you any more? inquired Brenner, thrusting his head forward dangerously. Witherwax interjected. Say, mister, ain't I seen you somewhere? If you haven't, it's because you were looking the other way, Mr. Witherwax. I work in the reference department at the public library. My name's Keating, he finished with a touch of self-consciousness. More names were pronounced, and Mr. Cohan became occupied with another round. Witherwax said, do you really know something about there was an Atlantis, Mr. Keating, like this Donnelly says? Not like Donnelly, no. I agree with Dr. Brenner there. But maybe some kind of Atlantis or something like that. 
A funny thing happened at the library recently, and it's left me feeling uncertain about a lot of things. Not that I want to contradict you. He made a propitiatory gesture toward Doc Brenner. But let me tell you about it. You remember the head of reference, Mr. Meester? The old guy with the flower in his buttonhole that knows so much about everything? said Witherwax. That's the one. His name was Laban Mester, but we always called him Methuselah around the library. He was the senior member of the staff, had been there for thirty-odd years, but was pretty spry, and looked as though he were only around fifty-five. I guess he was probably one of the most wonderful reference librarians in the world on anything that touched on history or geography or language or philosophy. The technical reference questions bored him, and he used to pass them on to someone else when he could. But the facts in his field of interest he carried right in his head, even pretty unimportant facts. I remember one day somebody wanted to know something about a gang of early American criminals named the Thayers. They took the question up with old Mester, and without batting an eyelash he came back. Why, yes, they were hanged in Buffalo, New York, in 1825 when Lafayette was visiting the place. He couldn't find any reference book to prove it, though, and somebody had to write to Buffalo. <laughs> But he turned out to be perfectly right. That was the usual way with Mester. He knew books and what was in them very well, but beyond that he had a whole reference library in his head. I'm in the technical section myself. There was another funny thing about Mester, and it has a bearing on what happened, I think. I gather he lived alone. Don't believe he had any home life at all. Well, when he was off duty, he didn't go around with a lot of other learned old ducks, as you might think. He liked young people. He used to go around with any of us and tip over a few drinks whenever he could get the company. And once he got started, he'd take two drinks to your one and then start telling stories. Perfectly startling ones. I've had him in here a few times, and when he got oiled, he even astonished Mr. Cohan. Mr. Cohan said, Would that be the tall old felly with the big eyebrows and the joint off the thumb of him, Mr. Keating? That's the one, said Keating, kind of wall-eyed as though he were continually surprised by what he was looking at. Sure, he was the one, said Mr. Cohan. I mind him saying something about Ireland once, and me asking him how he knew, and he says he's been all round the lakes of Killarney in a jaunting car. Yes, continued Keating. That was his method, especially in his cups. The information he had was always personal. The stories he told happened to someone else, but he learned them on the ground, so to speak. I remember when he was talking about handling a sailing ship on a lee shore in a storm one night. I asked him how he knew. He said that when he was a young man, he had spent three years on a whaling voyage in Greenland. I checked up on his description afterward by the kedge anchor, and as nearly as I could make out, he was perfectly right as usual. But it was that whaling voyage and the Babylonian tablet that made us get up the list. The Babylonian tablet was one of the series the library set out in the lobby in showcases for a reading and writing through the ages exhibit. Polly Rixie had charge of it. You must have seen her around the library, Mr. Witherwax. She's that blonde girl who always wore her hair piled on top of her head. Mester liked her pretty well and let her know it. I don't mean he made any obvious passes at her, because he was a gentlemanly old coot. But he was always making opportunities to talk to her, 
and when she went up the iron grillwork stairs in the back of the stacks, the chances were that he would be somewhere around the bottom trying to take a peek at her legs. A lot of girls would have been annoyed. When the others saw him standing there, they used to go around and take another way up. But not Polly. She seemed to take it as a compliment. She was what you sometimes call a teaser. Not quite on the make and always perfectly ladylike, but she enjoyed giving the impression things were different. I remember her telling a couple of the other girls how to behave when you go out with an older man. She didn't know I was listening. She said, You smile at him and listen to everything he says and never interrupt. And if he puts his hand on your knee, go right on eating. He can't get really fresh in a restaurant and he'll take you out again. There are girls that get a big kick out of that, persuading an older man to make a play for them, especially if he's in a dignified position and not the kind you'd expect to take an interest in legs. Polly worked on old Mester that way, and the operation was a success. Anyway, about the tablet. On this day, I had been out to lunch with Mester, and as we came in through the lobby, there was Polly Rixie arranging the reading and writing exhibit. Of course, he had to stop and talk to her, and glanced at the tablet. My dear, he said, do you know you're perpetrating a fraud on the public? Your card says that's a hymn to the sun, but it isn't anything of the kind. That's the legend of the childhood of Sargon the Great. Here. He picked it up and began to read. Sharukin, the mighty king, the king of a god, am I. Lowly was my mother. I forget how it all went, but he read it off as though it were in English. He was perfectly right, of course. When Polly took the tablet back to Professor Olmsted at the university, who had furnished the translation, he said he didn't know how such a stupid translation had been made, probably because the other text had been on his desk at the time. She went out to dinner with him that night and let him feel her knee, I suppose. The next day I met her in the stacks, and she giggled and said, Do you know what it is now? I asked him how he could read that Babylonian tablet, and he said he spent two years on an archaeological expedition in Mesopotamia. We ought to keep track. Let's, said I. So we did. We not only put down all the places he'd been and times he said he'd been there as he told them to us, but we went around and got lists from the rest, too. I think I still have the general compilation. Keating fumbled in his pocket and produced a somewhat worn piece of paper, which he passed to Brenner. It was written in tabular form. Whaling voyage to Greenland, three years. Living among the Tlingits, one and a half years. Studying in Vienna, nine months, with a question mark. In the Argentine, one year. There were subtotals as the list went on, and a final, grand total, 228 years and seven months. That's why we called him Methuselah, Mester, Keating continued. You'd say he was just an amiable old liar, and so would I. So did I, and so did Polly. But there were two odd things about the list that didn't impress me until later. One was that there was never anything you could check in these travels of Mester's. He didn't say what ship he'd been to Greenland in, for instance, and when you tried to press him on a point like that, he'd just talk about something else. You can't come down too roughly on the man you're having a sociable drink with just to make him out a liar. The other thing I've mentioned already, about the information that accompanied the accounts of these imaginary travels being always accurate. I didn't think anyone ever caught him out. 
Brenner coughed. Mr. Cohan, I'll have another, and so will Mr. Keating here. Are you going to tell me that he said he'd been to Atlantis, or had some information about it? No, said Keating. I'm not. Thanks for the drink. I'm going to tell you first about what happened one night when we were in here. Mr. Cohan will remember about it. Mester and I had been having maybe three or four drinks. As we went out, he was saying something to me, looking at me as he did so, and not at the traffic, so he didn't notice a delivery truck that came around the corner on two wheels. I grabbed his arm and yanked him back on his tail on the sidewalk just in time. When we were back here in Gavagan's, getting some tonic for shaken nerves, he said, "'Roger, I think you have saved my somewhat unworthy life, and I want you to know I'm not ungrateful.' What can you say in a case like that? I was so embarrassed I wanted to paw the floor like a little boy, and he must have seen it because he let the subject drop. But the next day, as I was sitting in the tower lunchroom, just about to start in on the apple I was having for dessert, old Mester came poking in with his eyebrows wiggling. He said, Roger, do you want to come with me for a few minutes? I have something to show you. I followed him, bringing my apple with me. He led the way downstairs to the basement, way in the back where they keep uncatalogued newspaper files and things like that. He picked around in this wilderness of paper for a few moments and finally hauled out something from a shelf at the back. It looked exactly like one of those scrolls on which ancient manuscripts were written, and it had a rod through it too, only the material didn't seem to be paper. Old Mester laid it down on a pile of newspapers, which were, in turn, laid on a table. "'Knowledge can be a very useful thing,' he said. "'And I wish to make some small concrete expression of my gratitude for your kindness last night. "'This is the apodict.' "'I had never heard of the apodict, and when he began to unroll it, "'I didn't recognize the characters in which it was written, though they looked something like Greek. "'The most interesting thing, though, was that it was illustrated. "'The pictures were divided into frames, like in a comic strip.' In fact, Mester remarked on it. The newspaper comic strip, he said, is supposed to have begun without Colt's yellow kid, just before the turn of the century. But this is a good deal older. Also, it serves a practical purpose. Now, look at this series. They ran from top to bottom on the roll, and there was nothing the least Greek-like about the little human figures pictured in them. In fact, they looked like the conventionalized figures you see in Aztec picture writing, and they had feather headdresses like the Aztecs, too, a whole series of figures going through gestures. What is it supposed to be? I asked. That, he said, is partly a lesson in apportation. Here, put that apple you have on this pile of papers, use your pencil as a wand, and follow through the motions of this figure here. I was willing. I like parlor tricks. It won't blow up or anything, will it? I asked. I think not, he said without smiling. It will merely be removed elsewhere. So I began copying the motions of the figure, tapping the apple on top, then once on each side, then making a couple of circles around it with the pencil, and so on. The drawing was so stylized that it was hard sometimes to tell what motion was desired. Mester kept straightening me out and telling me to do it more smoothly and to have faith that it would work. I was beginning to get bored and tired in the arm when it happened. The apple simply disappeared. 
One second it was there, and the next it wasn't. I stood there goggling with old Methuselah Mester chuckling in the background. What did I tell you? he said. Just then I heard a step and turned around to see Polly Rixie coming down through the piles of newspapers. My goodness, she said. I've been all over the building after you. Roger, that Mr. Mandelstammer is here again, wanting you to help him find something about tool design. And there's a visitor for you too, Mr. Mester. He said he'd wait, but it wasn't library business and he couldn't talk to anybody else. He said to tell you it was Mr. Malik. Oh, said Mester, I'm afraid I've made a mistake. His voice was so queer that I looked at him, but he only said, I guess we can't go any further today. He was rolling up the apodict as I went upstairs. Mendel Stammer is one of my particular crosses. He was pushing his paunch against the desk and waiting for me. But on the desk itself was something that interested me a good deal more. It was an apple. I won't swear it was the same one that had disappeared from the pile of papers in the basement, because I hadn't carved my initials on it or anything, but it certainly looked the same. I got Mandelstammer straightened out with his books on tool design, and was about to take the next request, when one of the page girls touched my arm. "'Do you know where Mr. Mester is?' she said. "'This gentleman's been waiting for him for quite a while.' She pointed to a man standing at the desk used by the reference librarian. He was even taller than Mester and thin, with frizzy white hair all round the edge of his head and very deep-set eyes. I went over to him and told him I had been with Mr. Mester in the basement when the message came and that he should have been up right behind me, but I'd go down and look for him. The old boy pursed his lips and said, "'No, you won't find him. He must have learned. Thank you.' Then he put on his hat and went out. Now, that was the funny thing I started to tell you about. It was a funny thing to say, and it was perfectly true. We didn't find Mester. It's almost a month now, and nobody has seen him. He hasn't been home. He's disappeared just as completely as my apple. And so has Polly Rixie. Old Mester didn't have any relatives listed in the records, but she had a family out in the Middle West somewhere, so the head librarian wrote to them, describing the circumstances, asking permission to put the missing persons bureau on the case. But the family just answered that if Polly wanted to elope with a man old enough to be her father, that was her business, and to let the girl alone. So there hasn't really been anybody trying to find them, but I doubt they'll get anywhere if they try. Brenner said, Would you mind telling me what all this has to do with Atlantis? Keating faced him. Don't you know? Probably not. I didn't either until about a week ago. I was reading a translation of Prato's Critias. It contains a lot of very early mythology, the kind in which scientists are always trying to find some strain of fact. Well, there's a story in that. Poseidon once visited Atlantis and fell in love with a mortal maid named Clato. She bore him ten sons, and one of them was named Mester. Oh, yeah said Brenner, with a rising inflection. And I supposed you could do that apportation stunt he taught you? Oh, that, said Keating. You know, I had the most frightful headache in the afternoon afterward, and every time I really try to concentrate on it, I get another one. 
I thought I must be doing something wrong and went back down there to look up that roll of the apodict, but I couldn't find it either, although I almost turned the place upside down. But maybe I can make it work this time, though. He took a pencil from his pocket and, with an air of frowning concentration, lightly tapped his glass of rum and water on the top and the two sides. No, you don't, said Mr. Cohan. Magic you may do, but Father McConaughey says this television is witchcraft, and I will not have people trying it in Gavagans. I love Mr. Cohan. <laughs> he always brings it back down to earth, and always with that Irish Catholic thing going on. I hope you enjoyed that. It really is a wonderful encapsulated sample of these two authors pairing and their sense of humor and the way they love to throw modern sensibilities up against the old stuff and see what happens. Old stuff, of course, meaning old characters, myths, uh, actually historically mentioned characters, and so forth. There isn't a lot more to say. It was what it was. As I said, their books are available usually through libraries, but also used bookstores, and Amazon has some. So take a look around, see what you can find. Now, next week is Thanksgiving week. And what better week to finish up this is Apple Yard's year, especially since a great deal of the November chapter focuses on football. So I'm going to roll November and December together so we have a big holiday-focused chunk and, you know, fall-winter-ish chunk together, and that will kind of kickstart our own holiday season, right? And then after that, possibly one more short story, and we will be off to The Cricket on the Hearth by Charles Dickens. And I really don't have a lot else right now. Maybe it's because Thanksgiving's coming. Maybe it's because I'm working on this catalog project. I'm kind of drawing a blank. The only thing I've got, which is only exciting to people who like to play a certain kind of game, is that Baldur's Gate 2, The Shadows of Am, and The Throne of Baal came out this week. These are games that are of a Dungeons & Dragons universe but you're playing them on the computer. You can choose who your character is. You've got all these various quests coming up. You've got other people you add to or drop from your party based on their quests, based on their skills and talents and how they complement your own. And it's just so much fun. I think the original game came out in 1988. It wasn't quite that long ago, but whenever it came out for the Mac was when I started playing it. Then when Baldur's Gate 2 came out, wow, so much more fun. And the kids grew up watching me play this and kind of hanging over my shoulder sometimes. And I'll never forget the moment when I walked into this house full of spiders and Rose and I both let out this huge scream. <laughs> Everybody in the house came running. You know, a mother-daughter moment, right? And then people wonder why Hannah's favorite movie is Aliens. I, I don't know. I think it perfect favorite movie. Hey, they had American Girls dolls and books and all that stuff, too. I'm just saying. We had that added dimension of adventure in our household. As you can imagine, as operating systems moved on and the money made from the game was all up front and no further sales were made, one wasn't able to play them anymore. 
So they kind of went into my desk drawer full of other old discs that I used to love, like the Infocom games. So about a year ago, Baldur's Gate was redone with the promise that if there were enough sales, Baldur's Gate 2 would be redone. So these are enhanced games. They have extra quests, extra characters, much better graphics, better control over everything. I didn't hold out much hope for Baldur's Gate 2, but I grabbed Baldur's Gate 1 as soon as it came out for the Mac. Lo and behold, November 15th, the second one came out, which I grabbed and which I have to admit I've kind of been addicted to since it came out. Let's just call it my preference to TV. (laughs) Some of the quests I remember, some I don't, but all of them I'm having a great deal of fun re-exploring and rediscovering. And Hannah has got her copy, and Rose is planning on buying her own copy. You know, the family that games together stays together, something like that. (laughs) Tom works in the evening, unfortunately, since we've got a co-worker who's got all those family problems. And I am playing Baldur's Gate. While exploring music with Liszt, the composer, plays in the background. I love it. It's so much fun. Whatever you're choosing to do in the evenings, I hope you're having a great time, too. And as always, something that makes my life a lot of fun is reading to you. I appreciate you coming by to listen. It makes everything better for all of us, right? Have a great week, everyone, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.